Let's pray. Father, my prayer this morning is that you would reveal to us that we are a desperate people, desperately in need of the power of your word, the power of the gospel. Lord, we are a people that need healing of all kinds, whether it's physical healing, whether it's emotional healing, spiritual healing. Father, we are people that need the reality of the gospel and the saving power of the gospel to deliver us each day from the sins that so easily ensnare us. Lord, I pray that by your grace today that we would receive your word, that we would receive it in truth, and that we would respond in such a way that makes much of you. We would respond in a way that shows that your word has cut through the joint and it has cut through the marrow and it has brought light into the dark cavities and the deepest recesses of our soul. Lord, would you speak through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So back in the book of John, John chapter 1. So let me back up just a little bit for you. Dennis, you can bring this down a little bit. So I'm not going to re-preach what we've already talked through, but I do want to highlight the first, the first section of John's prologue here to kind of give a, give a beginning to end, not a beginning to end, but to give a complete, complete thought here. So when it says the beginning of Christ, uh, not the beginning of Christ, but in the beginning where Christ created all things, and then it goes to where he becomes flesh. All right, so a, a major emphasis today, Christianity, again, hinges on the person of Christ. It hinges on the deity of Christ, and for the incarnation of Christ to really matter, we have to subscribe to the deity of Christ. And so I've preached that. I've argued that. I won't go through all that again. You're going to see it over and over again in the text of John's entire gospel, but I want to start here. I want to start with this, and the word became, or I want to start with this. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. So as a reminder, because I want to piece this in together with today's text, is that he is from the beginning, he was there in the beginning. This word beginning, as a reminder, is not the beginning of Christ's life. I sat across the room from two Jehovah's Witnesses this past week on Tuesday as they're trying to convince me that Jesus had a beginning. They said God was there. Because if I say to a Jehovah's Witness, Christ created all things, he's the creator, they would say absolutely and amen. But they would say, but he's a creator as a created being. So the reason and the way Jesus created was as a created being. God was there. God, as they would say, a monotheistic Religion is what they would call Jehovah, the Jehovah's Witness organization. Even though they would call Jesus a separate God, they still claim to be monotheistic. And they would say it's monotheistic because God is unlike any other lesser God. This is not what the Bible teaches you. And I think it's important to reemphasize this because this is what you're up against when you go out there and when you talk. Don't take for granted that when you say to someone, hey, he was there in the beginning, that they think beginning the way you think beginning. Don't take that for granted. Because in many cases, they do not think the same way that you think. They think the beginning of Christ's life. They think the beginning of his created being. 
And that's not what the Bible teaches. So I'm just wanting to be very clear and show you the pre-existing word of God. So here's the objective. To consider the pre-existent state of the Son of God, His eternality and His union with the Godhead. And I'll do this very, very briefly. And it's complex, but it's simple. Okay, so this word in the beginning, it connotes from eternity past. It doesn't connote the idea that he had a starting point. It connotes that he was there before all things. He just existed from eternity past. So if I'm going to argue for you or with you about the eternality of Jesus, these are some of the things that I'm going to say. I'm going to point you to the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. And I'm going to say, the scripture says, But you, O Bethlehem, this is the prophet saying this, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the class of Judah, for you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. He's saying, from Bethlehem, this little bitty place that's almost too small to be named among Judah, will come the one that I'm sending. And here's what's interesting. It says that he is from old, from ancient days. Do you know how that can be translated? Do you know what the original word there is? I'm glad you asked, eternity. That's what that word is. In the Hebrew, that's what that word means. But we've translated it in English as ancient days. Eternity. It didn't say at the beginning of his life. It's from eternity past. It's from eternity past. So if Jesus is God, Jehovah he is eternity, or he is eternal. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So here's the thing. When you go through the entirety of the Bible, if you're using a proper biblical hermeneutic, in other words, if you're studying your Bible in the way that you should, and that's taking scriptures that are way towards the back and scriptures that are way towards the beginning, and all of these are helping to shape the way you understand the Bible. We're not taking one verse because that's proof texting, right? In other, in other words, what if I just showed you, what if all you ever read of the entire Bible was this little section of Isaiah 43 where it says it pleased the Father to crush the Son, but you'd never read anything else? I've just come to your tribe from your country, and you've never heard the name Jesus, and I said, come, come, I want to tell you about God. I want to tell you about this, this wonderful being God. And I say, here's the scripture I want to give to you. It pleased the Father to crush the Son. Anybody who hears that without any other context is going to have this idea that this is a nefarious, pejorative type of, con uh, 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 of connotation. This is, this is hard. This is wicked. This could even be bad. No one's going to look at that and think, oh, that's a loving God because it pleased him to crush his son. If we apply that to our terms, how many of you with a son or a daughter will go out and be willing to sacrifice your child and say, it pleased me to crush him or it pleased me to crush her? Nobody thinks that way. Nobody thinks that way. And if you encounter someone like that, you're probably going to think that they're a wicked person. So the greater context obviously matters. So don't be guilty of proof textings. This is just a, a helpful hint, a helpful introduction for you as we start wading through the waters of John's continued gospel here. He's from everlasting to everlasting. If you study all the things about Jesus being God, 
what you end up doing is you apply the things you read of Jehovah all throughout the Old Testament especially, and you can apply those to Jesus because Jesus is Jehovah. I'm not saying God the Father and God the Son are the same being. I'm not saying that. That's not Trinitarianism. I'm saying that they are one in being, but they're separate persons. This is, this is the crux of Hebrews chapter 1 when the author of Hebrews is presenting to us Jesus. He's the radiance of his glory. He's the exact representation of his nature. The language of Hebrews chapter 1 is an apologetic language. The author of Hebrews, whoever that might be, is saying, I'm making an appeal to you that Jesus is deity. I'm making this appeal to you. That's the purpose. That's why later in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, the author of Hebrews appeals to Psalm 45, a passage that is specifically designated for God, for Jehovah on his throne. And then the author of Hebrews pulls in Psalm 45, says, Of the Son, let me speak. Of the Son, I say, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So we can trust that the pre-existing, that, that Jesus is the pre-existing word. He didn't have a beginning. He's from eternity past, and these things matter because it matters who he is and his person and his nature. It matters that he's God when he, came, when he became flesh. It matters for the way he lived his life. It matters for the way he died, and it matters for the resurrection, and it matters for your hope. Jesus, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, had eternal union amongst the Trinity. So let's briefly talk about the nature of their relationship because we've all thought about this. Okay, what was it like to be the Godhead. Not that we're trying to put ourselves in their shoes or anything like that, but it is interesting to think, what was conversation like? From eternity past, this is eternity. This is beyond the way that we can think because God exists outside of time and outside of space, but we very much exist inside of it. We exist in a series of sequential events, but not God, not the triune Godhead. So the Godhead exists in a perfect union amongst the three. Three who are one and are always right, so there's no disagreements, no fighting, no power struggles because they're equal. Three who are one and all-powerful, so there's no macho competition to see who's better than the other one. Three who have one mind and one purpose, so they are not divided but in complete unison. And then you have to ask yourself the question, why would anyone want to leave such a fellowship? I mean, why would he do that? I think... I think Christians really need to ask this question. And I think whenever you're appealing to someone who's not a follower of Christ, you need to ask them this question. Okay, so we believe that he has eternally existed. Why in the world would he leave that position? Why would he leave the presence of both the Holy Spirit and of God the Father? Why would he do that? Why would he come here? You know what kind of junk we have to go through here. Why would he do that? To die? Really? And so I think we start asking these questions. You have to ask these questions. I think Peter understood it. Peter started asking the same kind of questions. Peter is a part of the transfiguration when you have Jesus on the mountaintop and you have the Holy Spirit present and you have God the Father present. This is one of the accounts in the Bible where all three are represented. It happens a few times. And Peter's up there and it blows his mind. He says, well, we need to set up some tents we need to stay here, stick around here for a while. And, and essentially the Lord just said, well, shut your, shut your face, Peter. The big boys are talking. But I get it. Peter saw it. He's like, this is, this is good. Let's not leave this place. 
I mean, if I'm walking with Jesus, God the Father is speaking down and saying, hey, you, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Follow him, listen to him. The Holy Spirit's there doing the Holy Spirit thing. I would be okay. I'd be content as a cucumber, as I've heard before, in the Mississippi Delta, and I would be happy. I can't stay there. That's not my purpose to stay there, but it wasn't Jesus' purpose to stay amongst the triune Godhead because of the necessity because of the souls of men. So Jesus left because he left for the glory of God and he left for the souls of men. God would have been glorified any way that he wanted to, so I'm not saying that God's glory was contingent upon Jesus leaving. I'm not saying that. Because God gets glory however God wants glory. God determines how he gets glory. We don't determine that. But I am saying that it was essential that Jesus come for your soul and for mine. And we know that. If you're sitting here, you're professing to be a Christian, you should know that. You should boast in that. You should see the grace behind all of that and that you were destitute, you had no hope, and that he had to become flesh. Not just Jesus the man, but Jesus, the, Jesus as God had to become man. And that's where we are in this text. It says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. The word was God. He created all things. And then we jump down to verse 14, and it says, The word became flesh. This is often a text that we would look at during Christmas time because we're celebrating the incarnation of Jesus. But in reality, every day, we're celebrating the incarnation of Jesus. But I want to camp out on the word became flesh. I want to help you see this. I want you to know this is how my mind works. My mind works in this way, and so this is how you receive it in my preaching, is that I'm not an engineer, but I do try my best to reverse engineer things. I try to understand the mechanics of things, especially when I'm looking at the attributes of God. I want to understand the mechanics of that. I want to move past generalities. I explained this to our missional community on Wednesday night. You know, I can say all day long, like a good Baptist, you know, let's just... Let's just put it at the foot of the cross. What does that mean? What are the mechanics of that? What happens? I'm saved by grace through faith. That's fantastic. That's scripture. But what are the mechanics? I want to explain what that means. What is grace? What is faith? How does that transaction take place? These mechanics really, really matter. Because it takes you from a general worship of God to a very specific, and I would say even a heightened worship worship of God because you know more of God once you start to explore the mechanics of how a thing works and not just that a thing works. So I want us to think critically about the implications of Christ's coming. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. I don't know if you've ever thought this way. I was talking to Sarah about this last night. The word became flesh and all these people met Christ. You meet him on the street. You know him as the carpenter. You know him as Mary and Joseph's boy. You know, I'm sure he played with his friends growing up. I'm sure he had his friends, his contemporaries, his companions. They hung out with him. Did they know who he was? Nah, not all of them. But imagine the fact that when these people shook hands with Jesus, when they went to Jesus, who was a carpenter, by the way, which is crazy to me, he created all things with a word, and now he's creating things with his hands. I don't know if you've seen first century furniture. It's not stellar. All right, it's not super complex. You don't look at it and think, well, that is quite nice craftsmanship. It's not like what Austin produces, right? It's more like what Alan produces back there, just slapping some, 
some boards on a, on, a, on a sketchy frame and hoping it doesn't hurt a kid, right? So I'm not saying Jesus produced something that was sketchy, but I mean, and I just have to tease this thought out because that's where my mind went last night. It really is fascinating to me that Jesus created all things with his words. And it says it in Colossians. It says it in John. It says it in Genesis. Over and over again, he's created all things with the word, with a syllable. He's creating things. You know, he understands the mechanics when he creates all these things. The most complex things in the world. Can you, can you imagine? So let's say you're Joe Schmo from first century living down the street, you know, 103 Bethlehem Boulevard or something, and you walk up to Jesus hut, his home, and you say, hey, you're a carpenter. We're thinking about putting an end table beside our couch thing. Can you handle it? Do you have a portfolio that maybe we can look at? Well, sure, I've got a portfolio. Check this out. Maybe they're flipping through the portfolio, however that worked, and they see this thing. What is that? I call it earth. (laughs) That's what you live on, by the way. You know how that came about? A syllable, earth. Yeah, that's light. That's firmament, that's atmosphere. Yeah, I know you don't know what that looks like because you're stuck here. I made that, spoke that. That one knocked out in three syllables, pretty good, right? Shoot on over to Nepal, see this really tall mountain I made called Everest? Did that, just told it to be, and there it was. You know, I'm sure this wasn't the dialogue, but this is where my mind's going last night, and I'm calling Sarah, well, not calling Sarah, calling out for Sarah. She's, she's in the bathroom, I'm like, Sarah, I've, got, I've, I've had this thought. I think it's from the Lord. So I'm in there talking to her, and she's just not laughing at the joke, but she's laughing at me. She's like, well, you're quite taken with yourself, aren't you? I'm like, no, no, no. I'm like, I think this is fantastic. You know, can you imagine this conversation if Jesus would have said, man, I made all these things. He did make all these things. And he's a carpenter, and he's making much lesser things by comparison. I think it's fascinating. I mean, the, the disciples... You know, as much as they knew, as much as he revealed to them, I mean, they're, they're walking and talking and, and, and interacting with the creator of them. He made them. He spoke humanity into existence. And maybe it went right over their heads. I think it's, I think it's absolutely fascinating. So he becomes flesh. The creator of all things becomes flesh. Lives for 30-odd years, as a, and he becomes a carpenter. Isn't it interesting that Scripture teaches that God was with us? So there's something to notice about the fact that he was with us. Because God was not, well, he was always there, right? He was always there. So was he not always with us? There's something interesting, there's something peculiar about the fact that he was with us in the way that this is presented. Something significant. God did not enter a man, but he became a man. One scholar says, God became what he was not previously, but never ceased to be at all that he was before. Let me read it again. God became what he was not previously, but never ceased to be all. There we go. Never ceased to be all that he was before. He didn't lose anything. He didn't lose his nature. He didn't lose nature, who he was, his being. But the scripture seems to point out that he lost something in the incarnation. I mean, what else do we do with Philippians chapter 2 where it says that he emptied himself by becoming a man? So how do we reconcile the fact that this scholar says he didn't give up anything, but yet the scripture says he gave up something because he emptied himself. And I've argued this before back in Philippians chapter 2, and I won't pretend that you remember everything I say, so let me say it again. He emptied himself of the exercise of his divine 
attributes. Not all the time, because he still exercised his divinity on earth, right? He raised Lazarus from the dead. He healed people with his word. He did all of these things. That power transferred to his garment when the woman with like a 12 or 14 year hemorrhage came and touched the hem of it. And she was healed because of her belief. So he didn't give up complete exercise of his divinity, but he gave up a position in glory and he gave up by large part, the exercise of his divine attributes. You say, well, what do you mean exactly by that? Well, I've shown you the positive. Let me show you the negative aspect of that. Not that it's a bad thing, but you speak in negatives, you speak in positives, or you speak in negatives and in affirmations. So the negative is that Jesus decided not to know certain things. We see in the scriptures that not even the Son knows such and such a time because he decided not to know. He could have known, absolutely, in the same way that Jesus could have called a legion of angels to come down and to deal with whomever he pleases. Remember when he's having this dialogue with Pilate? And he says, let me just let you know who I am. I've submitted myself to the will of the Father, not to you. You know, I'm not, I'm not you know, you're not going to say jump and I'm going to say how high. I'm submitting myself to the will of God. I mean, he's the king of kings, okay? And he says, I can call a host of angels to do whatever I want them to do, but I'm not going to. And he's showing I can exercise divine attributes if I choose. God's dwelling with us was unlike what we would have expected because he emptied himself. He came, he took on the form of a man. He became a servant. I mean, it's captured in Philippians 2. It's saw, it's, it, it, we see it throughout the Gospels. And then in Isaiah's Messianic prophecy, where he's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. None would esteem him. He would be stricken, smitten of God. By his stripes we are healed. We see this over and over and over again. The Jews are still waiting for the red carpet to be rolled out, for the true Messiah to come. But he already has come. And he came exactly as the Bible said that he would come. And we celebrate that. We celebrate the way he came. And we celebrate that he came because it fulfills the scriptures and therefore glorifies God. But he didn't just come. It says he dwelt among us. And the literal translation of him dwelling with us is that he tabernacled with us. Several translations say different things. Dwell among us, made his home among us, dwelt among us, took up residence, lived among us. But the young literal translation says that he did tabernacle among us. Why the ESV translators, why the NIV translators and so many others didn't take the literal translation of that, I don't know. Probably just because, probably because it makes more sense in modern English to not use the word tabernacle as a verb. It just We hear dwell more, you know. But I would encourage you to start using the word tabernacle more often in your vocabulary. Can I tabernacle with you at lunch? You know, <laughs> it might sound weird to say, can I dwell with you at lunch as well? But still, you get the idea that one might be more common to our vernacular than the other. So that's the actual literal translation is that God tabernacled with us. And here's the beauty and the intentionality of the sacred scriptures. He tabernacles with us. And I think that language is used because of what the tabernacle of, under the old covenant represented. And so let me share with you a few things. The tabernacle in the Old Covenant, you understand this. They're working towards building a temple, a permanent residence, a permanent place to worship and do these things. The tabernacle went with them because they wandered through the desert. They wandered through the wilderness for those years, the children of Israel. So you have this tabernacle, which is like a tiny home that you can just move around wherever you want. And this was to take the place, this was to be 
uh, in place until they would build the temple. So the tabernacle was temporary. It was a precursor to the temple. The tabernacle existed as a mobile temple. God, the word, was with us temporarily, much like the tabernacle. God is with us as the word temporarily. The tabernacle was used for wilderness dwelling. The temple came once the Israelites reached the promised land. The wilderness home of the tabernacle foreshadowed the manger cradled carpenter's bench, the nowhere for the son of man to lay his head. The tabernacle was also perceived to be a humble and unattractive uh, uh, construction and appearance. Isaiah 53, he had no form or majesty that we would look at him and no beauty that we would even desire him. See, the tabernacle was a foreshadowing of Jesus because like the tabernacle was not something that we would gawk at and think this is beautiful. You don't look at the opulence of a tabernacle that they built and carried with them through the wilderness. Much like when Jesus came, no one looked at him and thought, wow, the beauty of Jesus. They thought, this is it. This is it. The tabernacle was God's dwelling place. God dwelt in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle by means of the Shekinah glory. In Christ, God made his dwelling on earth. The tabernacle was the place where God met with men. They called it the tent of meeting. Jesus is the way that God meets with men. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man or no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus said unto them in John 14, 9, Have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? The tabernacle was a place where God met with men. Jesus is the way that God meets with men. So the Word became flesh and tabernacled with us. Tabernacled among us so that he might suffer as our substitute. And here's the uniqueness of his arrival. Here's the uniqueness of him dwelling with us. Here's some points that you may have forgotten as you've read through the New Testament. Do you recall that when he came, there was an angelic involvement? The angel announced his coming and his arrival. How did the angels respond to Christ's incarnation? The angels worshiped God in response to him becoming flesh. The angels worship him he came and they worship that shows some kind of uniqueness to his incarnation the favor shown to the unassuming there's favor shown to the unassuming mary was not chosen because god favored her god favored mary because she was chosen to carry the messiah it wasn't that mary lived this sinless perfect life and that she was just cut from a different cloth and that there was something extraordinary about her apart from what God did for her. God in his benevolence and his grace and because God does what God wants to do even though we don't understand it a lot of the times he just says you. I will pick you to carry the Christ. God gave her her uniqueness. Just like Abraham was chosen as a pagan because of God's good pleasure to be the father of many nations. Just like Isaac was chosen for what he was chosen for. Just like David was chosen. Not because he was anything special. The uniqueness and the special nature of these people was because of what God did. God's doing in their life was not contingent upon who these people were beforehand. 
So there was this great favor shown to the unassuming, Mary being the unassuming. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The incarnation was unique because Jesus himself is unique. Listen to this. Born a baby, needing everything, while at the same time a Savior needing nothing. That's unique. Born the heir of all things, the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's nature. That's unique. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. No one else is born with those kind of credentials. Born worthy to sit at the right hand of the majesty on high, this is said about Jesus. He's born worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. No one else is worthy to do that. So there's definitely a uniqueness when it comes to the incarnation. This is why Christianity hinges on this. He's born fully God and fully man while emptying himself of his position and glory in the exercise of his divine attributes. He's born as God with us. God with us, not to mention the fact that he comes and he dwells among sinners and he lives in this putrid, wretched, fallen world. And he receives the disdain of most men still to this day. But he's still a king. He's still the king. He's still the one that all of heaven redirected its worship to him as the lion from the tribe of Judah in Revelation 5. And this is what it says of Jesus It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. Listen, for from His fullness, this is the second time it makes reference to His fullness. For from His fullness we have all received grace and upon grace. The all in this text directly applies to all who have believed because this text is a salvific in context right here because of what Jesus came to do. So it's saying all who have received him, all who have followed him, they receive grace upon grace. Everyone who receives him, they receive grace upon grace. But it says he's full of grace and truth. Let me say this, grace and truth are two essential components of salvation. I told you earlier that I like to understand the mechanics of things. I like to know how and why things work. Let me just explain to you by way of reading some research that I found. Because smartphones, they, they, the technology there is fairly impressive to me. Right? Technology in general is fairly impressive to me. Wesley said to me yesterday, Daddy, I, just, I wish they would stop with all the technology, which was such baloney coming from him because he like, loves anything technological. You know, I'm like, shut your face, boy. You know, we like technology. Smartphones rely on capacitive touchscreens, right? Which means your finger becomes a key part of the electronics. Typically, there are two sets of lines which provide constant electric current in a, in a, on a smartphone or a tablet. One set of lines is called the driving lines. The other set of lines are called the sensing lines. These lines detect the electric current. Not everybody's a PhD in chemistry, so y'all stay with me, Okay. At every point where the lines cross, there is an electrostatic, uh, there's an electrostatic field which is registered as neutral by the processor in your smartphone or computer, but this all changes when a conductor such as your finger comes and touches it. We're getting cool now, right? Sciency. The human body has a natural capacitance, which means our bodies can conduct electric current and can store electric charge. I know this. Because I like to jump on the trampoline with my children, with my socks on, create a strong electronic charge, and touch them. <laughs> you hear this, psh, psh, daddy, oh, daddy. I'm like, come here, suckers, you know. 
The electricity doesn't actually flow through your finger. The electrostatic field feels the effects of your electric charge and redistributes itself accordingly. How's that for a nerdy moment? That's the mechanics. Not that, we, not that any of us really understand what I read, but that's the mechanics. Those are the mechanics of the smartphone. And I think when we look at this text, I think much like he was in the beginning was the word of God. He was God. He was with God. The word becomes flesh. He created all things. He tabernacled with us. And then we get to he's full of grace and full of truth. I think we start to unpack the mechanics of that statement. What does it mean that he is full of grace and full of truth? What does it mean that he's full of anything? Because this word fullness here that's mentioned in verse 16, that same word, if my research is correct, don't quote me on this, but I'm trying to remember what I read. That same word is used one other time in Colossians where it says the in him the fullness of deity dwelled in bodily form. So this is quite the fullness. But it's interesting that you have Jesus who is Jehovah, who is without limitation. But yet somehow he's able to be full of grace and full of truth. The limitless Messiah can be full of something. How do you fill a container that can't be filled? Somehow we start looking at the mechanics of this and we start trying to process this wonderful reality from the text and all we can come up with, man, he's got a lot of grace. The infinite Savior, the infinite Jehovah God is full of grace and he's full of truth. Grace and truth are essential for the salvation of men. Grace must have an origin. God is its origin. Grace exists because God exists. You understand this? Grace exists because God exists. Grace must have a recipient. There's the all factor of grace and its recipient, and that is that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, it says in the scriptures. In other words, even people that are destitute, even people that live in constant rebellion against God and will die in their transgressions and be separated from Him and endure His eternal wrath, even those people have received grace upon grace because they live a moment outside of hell, because they live in moments where they can enjoy a joke, where they can laugh with a friend. Now, it's not salvific, eternal, lasting joy, but it's something that's not absolute agony and anguish, right? That's grace. It's not something they deserve because that's, that's another component of grace is that it's unmerited. So where was grace first extended? Many would, many would probably say, well, after the fall. You know, there was no sin at that point. Adam fell, Eve fell. God says, you know what, I could kill you, but I'm not going to do that. But I am going to kick you out of the garden. You will die, but you won't die today. And not only will you die, but you're going to have hope if you believe and promise in what I'm telling you. You believe in the promise that I'm offering you. So he gives them a way. He gives them hope, and that's grace. But I would say grace happened way before that. I think grace, as far as the human interaction with grace, I think that came about when Adam was made. Because when Adam was given life, he was given life to know that there was a great, beautiful creator that wanted to tabernacle with him. That's grace. That's grace. Even unsinful man, Adam before the fall, Eve before the fall, at that time was unworthy to know God. Unworthy to know God. And grace is the unmerited favor of God. If we contribute anything towards grace that is lavished on us, it ceases to be grace. You understand this? 
The very essence of grace is that it's undeserved, unmerited. You do nothing to receive grace. So those are some of the mechanics of grace. Here's the mechanics of truth as a part of salvation. Receiving truth is contingent upon grace, by the way. Unless God opens our eyes, we reject and suppress the truth, just like those did in Romans chapter 1. Truth is a basis for salvation because our hope is not built on a theory, but rather an event centered on the reality of Jesus, who called himself the truth. And it says, from him, from his fullness, we have received this grace upon grace. Again, this is the same term used in Colossians 1.19. In him, the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. The infinite Christ somehow is filled with grace, and he's filled with truth, and he lavishes this out onto us. Grace upon grace is a statement that means of the well from which grace flows. Is God has this infinite supply of grace. He gives out of his abundance like we saw in Philippians chapter 2. So he's filled with this grace, not to be diminished, and he keeps lavishing it on you. And the grace upon grace aspect is you don't leave one aspect of grace before another one is heaped on you. Really, we need to think about this because we lose sight of the grace of God, don't we? Sometimes we get into this functional mode that God is against us, that somehow he's with drawing or withholding his grace because I'm going through this or because I've had this happen or because my family's doing this or because of my job situation or because that God must have removed his hand and there's just no more grace right now for me which couldn't be further from the truth because it says you've been given grace upon grace your every breath is grace you have your eyesight that's grace you can drive down the road because you've got your license now do you Beat your chest and say, I did that, I did that because I stayed in between the lines and I stayed on 10 and 2 and I did these things. No, we can't glory in ourselves. No more than we can glory in ourselves for a job promotion because of what we accomplished. Because where do all the mechanics of anything that we can accomplish come from? It comes from God sovereignly piecing things together. You say, well, I earned that promotion. You may have put into work, but where did your work ethic come from? What was in you? That would say, I'm going I'm, I'm to be integral, I'm going to work hard, I'm going to do those things. Did you just conjure that up on your own? Absolutely not. That's the grace of God that says, so that you're not completely worthless, I'm going to lift you up. That's grace upon grace. It's the unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor of God. And I think we really do think that we deserve something sometimes. We really step outside of this idea of grace and we move into this world of we've earned something. I think that's a default mode of us from time to time. Well, I did this. I worked really hard for this. And it's easy because we do work. We do sweat. We do labor for things. And is it okay to be proud of an accomplishment? Absolutely. Don't lose sight of the grace that was there as the foundation. Don't lose sight of the work that was there as a foundation that got you there. Don't lose sight. I think that's one of the major issues that we run into as Christians is we want to boast in ourselves, where we're clearly told, let not a mighty man boast in his might. Let not a wealthy man boast in his wealth. Let he who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands God, that he knows and sees the mechanics of things, that he sees that God is working and he's providing and he's superintending so that we don't fall destitute. I love the way uh, John MacArthur said this. 
in an argument against those who would say you can lose your salvation. He simply said this, listen, if you could lose your salvation, you would. Period. You would. When you look at the book of Jude, it's speaking to the Christians. And Jude says, those who are being kept, you're being upheld. You're being carried. I get frustrated with my kids sometimes because they're needy. I mean, why can't, why can't a 10-year-old get a job? You know, Calvin, fix your own cereal. Come on. Then I get mad because he spills milk everywhere. Okay, don't spill the milk, son. I get frustrated with these things. And I was driving the other day. I was going to work, and I was very frustrated with my kids because, I'm man, they're just so needy. I'm just I'm showing my cards here, okay? I am human. I'm just frustrated. I didn't take it out on them, but I'm frustrated. And then the Lord just confronts me. And he says, <clears throat> he says, he says, that's you. He says, you, you need me every moment of your day. Those kids are just a small, small reflection of what you actually need in me. And where I get frustrated because my kids come up and say, daddy, 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 mommy, 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 and all these things. That's what God desires. Because he knows it. We're the only ones fooling ourselves. I need your grace. I need the gospel. I need you to sustain me every single day of my life. So functionally, I think we lose sight of that sometimes. And I think it's important that we get back to say, you know what? I need you. And grace says, I can find you. And that you'll be there. And that you'll carry me through these things that I need you to carry me through. So the next time someone looks at you and insults you, just remember these words from Charles Spurgeon. Hey, if any man thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. Your life as a believer is marked by grace. He is filled with grace and truth, and he lavishes this grace on us every day. This is a part of his coming to us. Grace epitomized in Offering salvation to men who don't deserve it. Talk about the unmerited favor of God. Talk about the fact that he doesn't just bring you from spiritual bankruptcy to spiritual neutrality. Mercy brings you out of spiritual, bank, or brings you out of, uh, spiritual bankruptcy. That's mercy. Mercy says, I'm going to withhold something you do deserve. And grace says, I'm going to give you something you don't deserve. So mercy brings us from spiritual bankruptcy to a spiritual neutrality. But here's the divine grace of God. He takes us from that domain of darkness, that spiritual you know, bankruptcy, and then he says, I will bring you into spiritual abundance. And I will bring you into spiritual abundance, epitomized by the fact that he says, I will give you the Holy Spirit of God. You can't be in more spiritual abundance than him giving you the Spirit of God to be in you. It's grace that... That you have taste buds that allow you to enjoy food you consume. Evan, you, you foodie you. It's grace that we breathe in one moment to the next. It's grace that you have a job and can make money. It's grace that you can place one foot in front of the other. Because I've met people who couldn't. I'm not making jokes, but I'm, that's a real deal. There are people that are, as we would see it, less fortunate. Grace falls on the just and on the unjust. Grace is the gift to every man, but only saving grace is applied to the redeeming Christ. So here's a word of application in 30 seconds or less. Grace has a way of showing us a few things. Listen to these. It shows us that it is the dividing line between life and death. It shows us that it is the dividing line between courage and fear, between hope 
and hopelessness. So remember grace the next time you are upset with someone because they said or did something to offend you. Remember grace. Remember grace when your spouse hurts your feelings. Remember grace when, as an option, when a disciplinary situation comes up in your parenting because it's never wrong to show grace. I've taken my son sometimes and said, I'm not just not going to spank you, but I'm going to do something nice for you. What? What are you talking about, Dad? Have you lost your mind? No, no, I'm showing you exactly what God has done in Christ. Exactly. And I've done that, and it's a powerful, powerful parenting tool or a powerful tool just in how you socially interact with people of the world who wrong you and you respond with kindness because it better reflects the grace of our God in sending Jesus remember grace when someone insults you remember grace when you're tempted to condemn someone because of the bad choices that they've made because it's grace that keeps you from making the same choices it's grace from keeps that keeps you from being the same person that you so disdain in this life Let grace be a tutor to you and humble you. And may you be one who doesn't just receive grace, but freely offers it as well to others. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, I just just pray this, that we would be a gracious people. Lord, that we would see the grace that we've received. And that we would freely offer that grace. And we can't offer saving grace. And we know that. And you know that. And Lord, I don't think anybody thinks that way in here. But Lord, we can offer grace because that's an attribute that you have shared with humanity. We are a people that can share grace because you are gracious. And I pray that we would exercise that attribute that you've given to us. And that we would look to be gracious to people. Lord, help us to have wisdom to see the right time to show mercy, to show grace, the right time to show discip- to, to, to exercise discipline, Lord, authority in these things. Lord, just help us to wade through this world. And at the end of it, Lord, may we be a gracious people, simply because we've been shown so much grace. I pray that for myself especially because, Lord, you know that I have such a weak this is such a weak area for me especially with my children Lord, because i feel like i'm so structured and i'm such a disciplinarian sometime lord help me to be more gracious help me to see the teaching opportunities in being gracious and help help my children and help those that i might be gracious to help them to understand the nature of christ's coming and the grace in his sacrifice the grace and his substitution the grace and all of these things that we might have life a life that we don't deserve a life that's been taken from spiritual bankruptcy to spiritual abundance father we pray these things in the name of jesus amen you dismissed